0: Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and starting in this episode is a series on what I am calling the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. I've been looking forward to sharing this stuff with you for quite a while and the moment has finally arrived. My previous series on the Enneagram which I put together some time ago was mostly a synthesis of Enneagram explorations done by other people with a mild dose of my own perspective and that was really a wonderful exercise. I got so much positive feedback from so many of you out there and I was really grateful that what I had to say had proved helpful to some of you but when I was done with the series. I made a decision that if I ever wanted to do another series on the Enneagram, it would need to be genuinely fresh. Well, this series is the surprising realization of that decision. Surprising because I wasn't sure that I'd actually be able to offer anything new on the Enneagram. And I guess all I can hope and all I guess we can hope together is that I really am presenting something that is genuinely fresh. If you are joining this conversation on the Enneagram for the first time, there is no need to worry. You really don't have to have any previous background knowledge on the subject. I will be covering some of the basics as we go along. Of course, if you do want more detail on the Enneagram in its more usual form, you're very welcome to have a listen to my previous series on the Enneagram, which is um, back in episodes 32 to 41. And then if you are not at all familiar with mimetic theory or mimetic psychology, which I'm placing in dialogue with the psychology of the Enneagram, you also don't need to worry. I'll be covering some of the basics of that too as we go along. Still, I offer a general sketch of memetic theory back in episodes 20 to 24, so you can give those episodes a listen if you like. Last things before we jump in, I do want to mention that I have a Patreon page, which is at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. If you do feel like what I'm doing here is worth your time or worth anyone's time, you're very welcome to support me there. Or for further edification, you can buy my book on G.K. Chesterton, which is called Seeing Things As They Are. That's available anywhere good books are sold, and I will put a link to that in the show description. The, The book deals with how we perceive or how we can perceive the world more clearly than we already do, given that we all tend to obscure the real because of various things, which coincidentally, um, is something along the lines of what the Enneagram deals with in any case. With that said, I want to talk here a bit about some foundational ideas from memetic theory with regard to the formation of cultures as well as the formation of personality. This means that I'll only really get to defining what I'm calling the Enneagram of memetic Desire in the following episode, and you may feel like this is a bit of a long-winded way to go, but I really do think that the background information that I'm going to give you in this podcast will be really helpful to, um, for understanding the larger story that I'm trying to tell here. In this episode, I want to begin by looking at mythology and the formation of culture, and then at mythology and the formation of identity or personality. This opens up my aim to always be looking at the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire in terms of two things, namely culture and personality to me the enneagram is too limited and too limiting if we're only considering it in terms of individual psychology since it illuminates so many things with regard to the way that society itself works and as we will get to combining mimetic theory and the enneagram result in a much more i guess a, a kind of interindividual enneagram not just an individual Enneagram. So it looks at how we relate to others and how we find ourselves in conflict with others, and then maybe also how we might actually deal better with conflict. So first, as I said, comes the the subject of mythology and the formation of culture. In examining creation myths from around the world, which are so-called origin stories, the philosopher René Girard finds a fascinating trend. First, There is chaos. Then, after a brutal murder, which he calls the founding murder, order emerges, and in effect, the world is created. When you see one or two myths that share a pattern, you might think, well, that's an interesting coincidence. But if you start to see the pattern everywhere, that starts to look like a plot. So then it's fair to ask, why do so many creation myths look so similar? Why is this pattern of chaos, violence, and then order, so universal? The answer is found when we turn, as Girard does, to anthropology, which is the study of human beings and societies, both past and present. We have ample evidence from history and more current events that shows how groups of people find themselves caught up in a state of terrible undifferentiation. What that means is that They live in a world in which nobody can tell the difference between up or down or right or wrong or enemy or ally or friend or foe. Everything is, in a word, chaos. So there's the first link to mythological creation stories. Chaos comes first. This is something like the wild and waste or tohu va bohu that we find in Genesis 1. In this communal chaos, desires are in absolute disarray and conflict is both vicious and without any rational or clear aim. This means that no one has any sense of themselves or others apart from the social antagonisms that their group of people are enveloped in. There is, in essence, a war of all against all. This is a kind of Hobbesian nightmare. It's often referred to as that. But, as the anthropological record reveals, what tends to happen within this frightening world of unlimited discord is that a victim is selected. This doesn't happen necessarily immediately, but certainly eventually a victim will be selected. This selection of a victim, which Girard refers to as the victimage mechanism or scapegoating mechanism, actually happens unanimously, which is quite remarkable considering that everyone has been uh, until this point at everyone else's throats and also in incessant and vehement disagreement with everyone else. Suddenly they unify. They stop pointing fingers at everyone else and instead start pointing their fingers in one direction at a single scapegoat or victim. The odd one out effectively gets voted to be the local target of what is essentially a lynch mob What happens next is clearly atrocious, but at the same time it's not all that surprising. The collective or mob commits murder. Their target is eliminated from the realm of the living. This collective murder functions like a release valve of sorts. The rage of the collective is exacted and all participants in the crime experience catharsis. They have, in effect, expelled all their individual sins and placed those sins projected them in a way, psychologically this is significant, onto the dying or dead body of the victim. All of this happens unconsciously, of course. No one complicit in this bloody crime knows that the victim was chosen fairly arbitrarily, and no one thinks that what they have done is really murder. Scapegoating like this, from the perspective of the crowd, is an act of justice, not an act of vengeance. In the mob's view, it is the comeuppance that the victim deserved. It is also, by extension, what their society needed. As is still horribly true today, the question of genuine injustice or justice hardly matters to the crowd. This is because the act of violence dissipates all the rage that was clouding everyone's view. Participation in this collective murder actually works. It does something. So violence drives out violence, or as Jesus says, Satan casts out Satan. Somehow, by an act of expulsion, of ridding the undifferentiated crowd of someone, harmony is restored, and the victim becomes the foundation of a new kind of social cohesion. Chaos is replaced with order. And so, to use a line from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Differentiation returns. Up is up again, and down is down again. In terms of Genesis, sky and land are separated, earth and water are told to stick to their territory, and everyone who had at one time been engaged in tearing everyone else apart becomes capable of living together without all that unbridled discord. And so, as you can see, and as Girard's research shows, the mythological structure parallels the structure of scapegoating rather perfectly. Chaos comes first, this is that state of undifferentiation, then after a murder there is order and therefore also differentiation. This allows for the recognition that everything is in its right place again. This kind of recognition is impossible in the midst of communal panic. Myths tell us many things of course, and I don't want to suggest a reductionist reading of mythology, which I think Gerard is somewhat guilty of. But as Girard has shown us, and I think he is right on this, myths certainly reveal the part played by scapegoating violence in the formation of cultures. Scapegoating is not the only thing that forms cultures, but it plays a significant role. Sadly, the procedure of how order is created out of chaos is pretty much the same today. The scapegoating violence itself might exist on a more nuanced spectrum now, ranging from actual violence and killing to using things like language and action in other violent ways. But the basic social procedure is still one of expelling a so-called enemy from the midst of a community in order to secure said community's sense of coherence and order, and of course, peace. If you want to get a sense of how this works, take a look at your own community, Who is the frequent target or enemy named by that community? You don't have to look far to find examples in the modern world. Marxism and neo-Marxism scapegoat the bourgeoisie or capitalism and thus capitalists. Democrats scapegoat Republicans. Conservatives scapegoat liberals. Fundamentalists scapegoat gay people. Queer studies scapegoat heteronormativity and so on. Sometimes the scapegoating is mutual. Sometimes it's one-sided, but it is always an attempt by people to create order in a world that is chaotic. It is, in a way, a meaning-making or sense-making exercise that operates in a world that has us struggling to find definite markers for differentiation. The scapegoating doesn't always work, though. Sometimes it actually backfires very badly. In fact, one of the Gerard's primary contentions was that scapegoating cannot work in the world anymore because the Christian revelation has laid it bare and found it wanting. I'm definitely going to need to explain that in greater detail in a later episode. But humanity still has a talent for scapegoating and a propensity to pick on victims for the sake of their desire for order. It's something of a human default. It's a primordial component of the collective psyche. And the primary reason for this is that Well, it's easy. Certainly, it's much easier to set up a strong sense of group identity in opposition to another group than it is to set up that identity in total isolation. It is far easier to know who your friends are when you know who your shared enemy is. It's easier to shut the door on someone else than to open it and let the light shine on you. Why? Because people are complicated. And one of the more alarming facets of self-deception, which is something that we are all capable of, is our tendency to presume out-group homogeneity, which is basically the idea that we think that our enemies are all like that, whatever that may mean. And what this means, in simple terms, is that the enemy is always neatly simplistic and two-dimensional, and thus fairly easy to spot and define I think hatred makes people or renders people two-dimensional, but your friends like you are complex and confusing with fuzzy edges and ambiguities, although we may not always know precisely what those ambiguities really are. If you have a clear target or enemy, there is no need to bother with understanding all of that complexity and ambiguity. All you need to do is focus on destroying the one who seems to be against you, or You know, even if they are against you, hatred binds you to them. The principle at work here is this it's easier to know who your enemy is than to know who you are. Although, as we'll get to, there is an alarming connection between the scapegoated enemy and the persecutor of the enemy. So, there you have it. Mythology holds within it clues regarding how culture is formed, how order and chaos are mediated by an act of violence. Mythology is a kind of key to our humanity, but there is a narrower perspective that regards mythology as a psychological key of sorts too, and the process by which cultures acquire their coherence operates as something of an analogy for and parallel to how each of us acquires a coherent sense of self. So that's what we're going to look at next. From a psychological perspective, it is really illuminating to think of the world as being composed of two predominant experiential categories, order and chaos. You could think of human subjectivity as that which mediates between these two things. Our subjectivity can be in a sense heroic when it does this well, kind of like St. George who faces the dragon of chaos and overcomes this chaos to save and then get his future wife who symbolizes the balancing of order and chaos as well as the anima or soul of St. George, if you are looking through a Jungian lens. But let's get to a more concrete or even banal example first, since mythology is only one way of looking at this. Let's say I need to drop my daughter off at daycare in the morning. This is not that far-fetched at all, since that is precisely what I need to do uh, during the week. I know the route and I have every intention of leaving on time, since after I've dropped my daughter off, I need to get to work. But on this one specific day, I also happen to need to attend an important meeting at work first thing. Setting aside the fact that placing the word important and meeting alongside each other is oxymoronic, it would be safe to say that all of this is part of the realm of order because it's part of the realm of expectation. It's familiar and comfortable and fairly predictable. But several things go wrong. I sleep badly the night before, and then instead of getting up when the alarm goes off, I hit the snooze button. Actually, I intend to hit the snooze button, but end up hitting the cancel button instead. And because I'm too sleepy to notice that I've done this, I end up oversleeping. So already at this point, chaos has started to creep in. My wife's alarm goes off later than mine, because she needs to get to work slightly later than I do. But thankfully, it does go... Off, and this certainly helps to mitigate my lateness but not totally because my daughter and I leave late the traffic is worse than normal even if we'd been slightly late in getting going the traffic will ensure that we are now going to really be late eventually after all the traffic I stop at my daughter's daycare but the elevator is broken so now we have to together climb five stories worth of stairs and so on. You get the idea, right? Order goes into chaos. Now I'm going to be late for a meeting and all sorts of other things. What are the consequences of that? Okay, well this is just thankfully for now a an exaggeration of what could happen. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but think for a moment about where all of this starts. Here I've given you an example of order turning back into chaos, but the myths presume that chaos tends to come first. We are as the philosopher Heidegger suggests, thrown into the world. And it is a world, a cosmos, that makes no immediate sense to us. Right from the outset of entering into the human drama, we are confronted with disarray. And this is distressing. The world is, for an infant's primordial psychology, rather undifferentiated. This is not nearly as hopeless as it may sound, because, thankfully, the infant's consciousness is not an isolated brain in a vat. For starters, the infant comes pre-set with a capacity to receive the world and begin to make sense of it. This is not enough, of course, as the sad cases of feral children have shown us, so it helps too that the infant has caregivers who will, through a painstaking process called parenting, begin to mediate the world of the infant. As he or she grows, this new little human being will also be shaped by peers, institutions, culture, society. The world of chaos will always be filtered, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. One of the strongest filters remains that of scapegoating, which amounts to a process according to which certain aspects of the world and the self are excluded or repressed so that a more coherent picture of the world and the self can emerge. On some level this is absolutely essential since the idea of receiving the world completely without filters, without say turning the volume down on certain things or turning the volume up on certain other things, would render the world totally overwhelming and also incomprehensible. Complex factors like psychological preconditions and cognitive force structures will come into play here, of course, but there will also be something like a victimage mechanism. You might even find evidence of this in the stories people tell about themselves. People often have stories about moments in which they realize that there was a part of themselves that they thought needed to be downplayed or played up in response to the world. In any case, as we grow All of us go through a process of defining ourselves, and this usually happens through some kind of opposition to something else. This is where things get tricky, though, because the thing that we oppose is often part of us too. And so within the mediated world, the self becomes both scapegoater and scapegoat. We scapegoat bits of the world, for one thing, but there are also parts of ourselves that we scapegoat. But what is scapegoated is not really eradicated, rather it is only repressed or shoved into and hidden in the basement that is the unconscious. In a manner of speaking, to use metaphors from Freudian psychology, the scapegoated part of the self becomes our unconscious. It becomes that part of ourselves that we disown. The part of ourselves who does the scapegoating is mostly the ego It is what we identify with most strongly. When I tell you, for instance, that I have a PhD and that I teach at a university and that I uh, am a podcaster and husband and parent and friend, well, that is my ego talking. It's a part of the truth of myself, but it is not all of who I am. And in fact, it's probably a very small, very microscopic part of who I am. Then there's another part of myself that's buried in the unconscious. Part of the unconscious is made up of the ego it. This more or less equates to the shadow of Jungian psychology. It's that part of ourselves that we have disavowed, disowned, and downplayed. And then lastly, there's that part of the psyche that mediates between the unconscious and the ego. This would be the superego, a small part of which is conscious, but the majority of which is really unconscious. Each of these components of the psyche fits with the mythological picture I've already sketched. The scapegoated part of the self, the id, approximates chaos, and the aspect of the self doing the scapegoating approximates order, and then there is that part of ourselves that mediates between order and chaos, and this is symbolized by the hero in mythology. You might frame this differently, and and there are ways that I might even frame it differently, but I think that this initial way of seeing things has its benefits. In mythology, the mediation between order and chaos is violent, although, as we will get to, there is another way of mediating between order and chaos, which is suggested by the counter-mythology that is found in the first few chapters of Genesis. But perhaps the best way to understand the mediation between order and chaos in ourselves and in the world is to recognize that part of our psyches always imitates the desires of others. This is usually... Located in the unconscious, in the id, and potentially in the superego part of ourselves that is unconscious. And this is what Girard refers to as the mimetic mechanism, and what the psychoanalyst J.M. Ugulian calls the mimetic brain. This threefold structure is the foundation of what I'm calling the Enneagram of mimetic desire, which is, in essence, a tool for helping us to engage with the ordered parts of ourselves that we have taken ownership of, the chaotic parts of ourselves that we have neglected, and the way that we might mediate better between those parts. It also becomes a way for navigating order and chaos in culture, something I'll be looking at in this series as well. The midpoint between culture and personality, however, is the main focus of this Enneagram of memetic Desire, which is about understanding and navigating our relationships with others, The Enneagram of mimetic desire will deal with the parts of ourselves that we have scapegoated and the horrible aspects of others that we don't want to have anything to do with. It'll deal in the process with how we might navigate and negotiate the conflicts that we experience in the world, but also the conflicts we experience within ourselves. I think all of us have those inner conflicts as well. The idea in the end is to mediate conflict effectively through gaining insight into the relationship between us and the world. That is the larger aim of this entire series. But for now we're out of time and I know I've only given you just a taste of how I am starting to see this Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. So in the next episode I will offer you something of an outline of precisely how I'm thinking of the intersection between Mimetic Psychology and the Enneagram. And I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. I hope you join me. Thanks for listening in everyone. Take care of yourselves. Cheers.